Salvation by grace. Verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the testimony of Scripture, brethren. We were sinners when Christ died for us. We want to take a look at the subject of salvation by grace, in particular, why we have to have grace. Why is grace necessary for the salvation of the soul? There's seven reasons that we can point to from Scripture why grace has to be unconditional, Amen. without conditions on our part. Yes. In our introduction, first of all, we want to consider the fact that all religions and doctrinal systems are either conditional or unconditional. Right. What do we mean by that? Conditional means that man has to do something for his salvation. Unconditional means that man does nothing for his salvation. Now, to make it plain for us, the issue we're talking about here is the eternal salvation of the soul. Salvation from hell. That's what we're talking about now. Another time and another place is where we could discuss practical salvation. What we can do when we are saved. But now we're talking about how do I get into heaven? How Are my sins taken care of? Another thing we've got to consider is that any condition that we can place upon a man, that's a work. And grace does not allow that at all. Uh, Over in Romans chapter 11 and verse 6, notice one of our verses up there. Romans 11 verse 6 would tell us, And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. That might sound a little confusing there. All Paul is saying is it's an either-or choice. Either we're saved by grace or we're saved by works because they're opposites. They don't cross paths with each other in the regard of what we're talking about of this salvation. They're totally separate. Another thing we've got to consider is the fact that any condition that we would place upon a man makes God a debtor. I mean, if it's something I do, I mean, we all work for a living, don't we? You go out and your master has certain conditions. You fulfill those conditions. He's under obligation to pay you for what you've done, right? He's a debtor to you. But God's a debtor to no man. Romans chapter 4 and verse 4 tells us that. Now to him that worketh, is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So here, these are our Bible reasons why we've got to keep keep these things in mind and in context as we look through this subject. Either God gives life by free grace, or man does something to get it for himself. That's the bottom line. As we continue with our introduction, let's think about other religions in this world, you know, some teach that you've got to obey the law of Moses to get salvation. Some have sacraments. Some would say baptism is what you need, church membership, or some sort of decision, repentance, in order to get this salvation we're talking about. But notice, all five of these options, who's the Savior? Man is. Our brother expressed it well this morning. I've heard it often from Arminian preachers. God the Father sent the Son. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. The Holy Spirit is wooing you. But if you don't accept, you're going to hell. Well, please tell me, who was the ultimate Savior in that system? Wasn't the Father. He just sent the Son. But that didn't get you saved. It wasn't the Son who actually died for you. It wasn't the Holy Spirit wooing you. It was your acceptance. So, who do you want to talk about? The law of Moses, sacraments, baptism, church membership, repentance, and a decision for Jesus? 
All of these are man's acts. They're not God's acts. But Scripture tells us something different. Scripture tells us that God gives eternal life as a free gift and something else. And something that we glory in. And that is the fact that God gets all the glory for our salvation. Not us. Not any man. It's interesting when you look at scripture. The fact that God planned out eternal life. Before he even created. Ephesians chapter 1. Many of our favorite verses are there, right? And it talks about before creation. God had a plan to save people. And notice, in that same chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, you can go to Romans chapter 9, you can go to a number of places, and what do you see there? All of the operations of grace are performed by one being. It's not a prayer warrior. It's not an evangelist. It's not a preacher. It's the Lord God himself. These are all things we need to keep in mind by having read Scripture when we look at this subject. Scripture points out that man is totally passive in obtaining eternal life. Again, what did our brother talk about this morning? What are we in sin? We're dead. How much activity do you see a dead man doing? You don't see him doing anything. The bacteria on him are doing something. They're decaying that body. But he himself has no power, no strength to do anything. If he is to do anything towards his salvation, somebody has to act on him. And that's what we're pointing out here. He's totally passive. And the next point is also important to consider, and that is the fact that faith, because many people say, no, no, it's not of works, it's of faith. Well, As you look carefully in Scripture, faith or any other obedience towards God result from God's gift of salvation. They're not the conditions for it. And we'll look at that. And brethren, there are seven seven categories of Bible proofs that we have that will show us the certainty of this doctrine. Now, we also want to think about the fact that unconditional salvation is not popular in the world. If you look at the two point whatever it is billion people that claim to be Christians, the biggest half of them are Roman Catholics. Oh, and Mother Rome is not happy with free grace because how else can you get people to buy indulgences, to buy your little candles, to buy masses, to save your lost loved ones if that salvation is totally free? So Rome's not going to be happy with this. Other people are not going to be happy with this. Most men are not going to be happy with the doctrine of free grace because man is a proud being. And this doctrine puts man in the dust. We're totally dependent on God if this doctrine is true. And man doesn't like that. And also, it's not going to be very popular because it removes all glory from man. And it gives it to God alone. So, with this background, let's get into our topic. Proof number one is that man by nature is unable to obey or please God for eternal life. Now, guess what? You heard that this morning. Brother Jonathan's already covered that for us. I will be covering a number of slides overseas to do that, but there's no point for us to go because he covered it well today. Many of the the exact verses and more that I would have covered, he's already covered for us. So let's go on to proof two. And proof two is that God expressly denies man's will or works in obtaining salvation. See, it's not just that we can get confused about it. God wanted to make sure we wouldn't get confused if we read all of our Bibles and we believe what it says. He expressly denies man's will or man's works as being part of what gives us eternal life. Notice how God denies that man's will is operative in the giving of eternal life. John chapter 1. You know, the verse that goes before this is the one that most Arminians love to quote 
about, you know, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, but let's complete the sentence. Which, we're born. Do you remember any of the grammar that you took back in high school, maybe? I know most of us don't. It's important when you read your Bibles to know your grammar. We're born. That's a perfect tense. That means that something happened well before all the rest of this is going on. Which were born, not of blood. That means whatever your racial stock is, you're a Jew, sorry, that's not good enough. Just because you're the seed of Abraham doesn't matter. You're not going to be born again simply because you're a Jew. Nor of the will of the flesh. Hey, that's my will, right? That's me saying, I I want you, Jesus, to be my Savior. No, that's not what gets you saved. Nor the will of man. No God parents. Baptizing you. Being a testimony for you until you become of age so you can make your testimony. No. But of God. If you're born again, you're born because of something God has done. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. This is Paul talking about. And the context is... Two little bitty babies being born. One that God loved and one that God hated. And he points out, it was before they could do anything. It was too young for them to have chosen. Too young for them to have done a good work. But God had already made a choice. And that's the choice that counts. Bible denies man's works in eternal life. Take a look at this passage. We've already read it. If by grace, then it's no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, it's no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Notice, God's denying man's works in this passage right here as being part of grace. Not of works, of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How? By our believing in Jesus. Oh, is that on the verse? By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. These are operations of God. These aren't things that we're doing. These are God's activities. God saves men where they're dead, not willing, and not working. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For if when we were enemies, think about that. If we, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, having been reconciled, is how we would say it in modern day English, we shall be saved by His life. We were dead. We were His enemies. We were fighting against Him. He saved us anyway and changed us. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. And in case you didn't know what that meant, by grace, you're saved. Don't you like the Holy Spirit's little commentary on these verses? That's grace. He hath quickened us. He has made us alive. And that's the basis under which we have eternal life. Salvation's by grace. Therefore, it cannot be by any works of man involved with it. You know, don't you lay it when God just piles on the evidences in his word? Salvation's a free gift. Therefore, it cannot be any action of man that puts God in debt. We've already mentioned that. Faith that is viewed as a condition for eternal life is salvation by works. Read scriptures carefully and you'll see that. We'll see a few in a few moments. Those verses that set faith in opposition to works are doing so as relative to the works of Moses' law. You know, that's one thing we always have to remember when we read the New Testament. We have to understand the audience, right? Isn't that one of our rules of interpretation? You know, to whom is this book written? We have to remember the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John never met an Arminian. Arminius didn't even exist until the 1600s. What they were dealing with in their explanation of grace, of faith versus the law, 
are those who are Jews, who are used to Moses' law and the fact that I have to offer this sacrifice. I have to do this work in order to be righteous before God. That's what they're dealing with. There are verses that set faith in opposition to works is doing so on the basis of faith not being a condition. Because faith is a work. What? No, faith can't be a work. They came to Jesus in John chapter 6 and says, What can we do to work the works of God? Believe on him whom, thou, whom the Lord has sent. That's in the red writing. I mean, it's, it's hard to get more than more solid than that, right? Faith is a law matter. Matthew 23, 23. That's where Jesus, here, I love, I, I, I missed this yesterday in my practice, so I'm going to turn to it and read it to you because I love this. Faith is a matter of the law, brethren. Matthew 23, 23, a whole chapter where Jesus is reading the riot act to the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he read, tells them something. And verse 23 tells us, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and eyes and cumin. They made sure they tithe so carefully that when they grew little herbs in the garden, they made sure to take a tenth of those herbs and give them to the priest in the temple. You pay tithes of, of mint and eyes and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. What are these weightier matters? Judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. Now, what is a work? A work is something you He said you ought to have done these things. Faith. Faith is a work. Any way you want to slice it. Faith is a commandment. Remember over in 1 John chapter 3? all the verses that talked about that His commandment that we believe on Him and that we love one another. Two great commandments taught by John. Faith without works is dead. So you've got to have works for faith to be alive. Ah, but wait a minute. If we've got faith, if we've got works, then it can't be grace. Do you see that combination? Do you see that logic? Can you think through that? Can you remember that the next time you talk to somebody? He says, well, faith and works. Point them to the, to the verses that say faith is a work. And if it's so, then and faith that doesn't have works is dead. It's not true faith. Continuing on. Only God's will is active in giving eternal life. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Remember, this is a deep theological conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus. A Jewish leader. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So, in the manner specified, is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Oh, but you gotta preach the gospel. Well, no, see, if you, if it was tied to the preaching of the gospel, you could predict it, right? You could say where it's coming from. But, but Jesus plainly said, no, you can't predict what's coming from. The wind is sovereign in the natural sense. It blows where it listeth, right? So is the way that people are born again. It's a sovereign act of the God of heaven. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, even so, in exactly the same manner, the Son quickeneth, who asked him? Whom he will. Again, whose will is operative in this? It's the will of God and the will of the Son of God. All wrapped up in the de- in, in God himself, but not much room for us there. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Romans 9.15 Wow. I, I don't want to be somebody who goes against that God. 
having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to their belief. See, I like to put these words out there because that's what you normally hear, but that's not what the verse says. According to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians chapter 1. Finally, then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. This is Jesus Christ. By the which will? Which will? It's the will of Jesus Christ to do the Father's will. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's go to our third proof. Third proof is that faith and works are the results of salvation, not the conditions for it. You talk about getting the cart before the horse. That's exactly what you have in the religious world. They put the result of salvation for the effect of salvation. Any spiritual desirability, Scripture teaches us, and we'll see the verses in just one moment, has to be worked into us by God. Based on the first, the very first point, right, which Brother Jonathan labored over this morning, the fact that we're dead. We've got to be made alive first. Once we're alive, oh yes, there's all sorts of possibilities there. But until you've got that principle of life in you, what can you do? What can a corpse do other than sit there and mold? Nothing. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now notice, this doesn't leave room for... uh, Fatalists, right? The way a fatalist wants us to read is that, you know, God works you and you, you're willing and you're doing. That's not what it says. It says to will, that means the ability to will. And to do, the ability to do. Does that not meet, match up with what we heard this morning from our brother? What is it that man lacks in sin? The will to do anything towards God. He can see He can understand, and he hates. He rejects that. But in regeneration, God gives us a will that wants to will and wants to do God's good pleasure. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Psalm 110.3 When Jesus Christ comes in power to speak to the soul, it's alive. But you've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Father. Notice, if we cry, Father, if we're wanting to call out to God, we've already seen what naturally we want to do, right? We want to run, hide in the bushes and cover ourselves with fig leaves. If we're running out to him and saying, Father, help us, it's because the spirit's in our heart. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith. Which comes first, the fruit of the tree? You got to have a tree, don't you? You got to have a tree before you get fruit. The Holy Spirit has to be in your life before you can get the fruit of the Spirit. And I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make, look at the emphasis, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Jeremiah 32, the Lord speaking about the covenant that he would make with his people Israel in the last days. And that people Israel included us, Gentiles. Continuing on. The ability to see, to hear, or to know God results from salvation. See, it's not like the Armenian says, well, just reach out and grab it. Well, how can you reach out and grab something you can't see? The hearing ear and the seeing eye Even the Lord hath made both of them. Do you understand what that means? To have an ear that hears and understands spiritual things, to have eyes that see and understand spiritual things, 
They've got to have been created by God. They're a special creation by God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man, except, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Talking to Nicodemus, he said, you know, you've got to be born again before we can even have a discussion. We want to talk about the kingdom of God and what it entails. You've got to be born again first. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to conceive it. He that is of God, heareth God's words. This is Jesus. To those Jews who believed on him. Interesting context. They already had said they believed on him, right? But then when he started pushing them, and pricking them, oh, wait a minute, they didn't want anything to do with it. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you're not of God. Now again, let me ask you a quick question. Was Jesus preaching to deaf men? I mean, did Jesus go to a place where everybody had the little ear, you know, ear horns and, you know, and, you know, knew they couldn't hear what he had to say? Hopefully anybody would say, that's absolutely absurd. Right. That's the point. Jesus was speaking to men who had perfectly sound natural hearing, but they did not have a heart that could hear and understand what he was saying. Amen. Yes. That's the difference. And until God makes that change, they're not going to hear. These are men who saw miracles. They were fed. Read the context of this. They were coming after Jesus because they just had a good meal. As thou hast given him, who is saying this, by the way, over in Acts in John 17, who is this? Sorry, I didn't put it in red. This is Jesus Christ. This is the Lord's Prayer. We talk about the disciples' prayer often. This is the Lord's Prayer. Right before he went to take our sins on the cross. As thou, Father, hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life, to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Who's going to get eternal life? Whoever Jesus Christ gives it to. And that's whoever God the Father gave him Amen. to give it to. Amen. That's the basis of, that is grace. Amen. That's what we're talking about in grace. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Are you thankful to be a babe to have this revelation? Because again, you've got to have a seeing eye and a hearing ear before you can have this, which are all creations of God. We are created unto good works, not because of them. For we are his workmanship, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. To explain that, God said, I want some people, and I want them to do some good works. So he created us in Christ Jesus so that we had the ability to do those good works. That's what this verse is telling us. Speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Again, the gospel that we have to offer people, this is a side note, it's not a fatalistic gospel. This is a gospel that says, if you see evidences like this in your life, you want to be zealous for the Lord. You're not going to sit back and do nothing. No, you want to take the grace that God has given you and do great things with it. Faith itself is given us in salvation. It's not something that we have to get salvation. It's a gift of God resulting from salvation. Wherefore, I give you to understand, Paul and to the Corinthians, that no man speaking of the Spirit of God saith Jesus is accursed. And that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. And brethren, if you're talking to somebody who wants to reject this whole idea of unconditional salvation, point to a verse like that and say, excuse me, do you believe the Bible? Or, or do we need to just stop the conversation altogether? 
Because if you don't believe the Bible, I can't, I have nothing for you. Only way somebody can say Jesus is Lord is because the Holy Spirit has worked a work of grace in his heart. But the fruit of the Spirit is faith. Simon Peter, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. And how did they obtain that? Through the righteousness of God and of our Savior Jesus Christ. Faith and works are evidences of salvation. Then Peter opened his mouth and said of a truth. Who's he speaking of here? This is Cornelius, right? Cornelius, who he had an angel in a vision tell him to go see this man. And he heard all these wonderful testimonies about him. What was Peter's understanding based on that? Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation he that feareth him... Somebody help me. What is feareth? What tense is that in English? Present tense. And worketh righteousness. What's that? Present tense. So somebody who's now, I look at you, and you're fearing God, and you're working righteousness, is accepted with Him. What tense is that? That's perfect tense. He's already been accepted by God. And that's, we could go one step further and say, and that's why He's now fearing and working righteousness. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, present tense, and believeth on him that sent me, hath, you're currently in possession of eternal life, and shall not in the future come into condemnation, but is past. You're already passed from death unto life. See, your hearing, believing, are evidences that you've already passed from death unto life. If you know that he is righteous, speaking of Jesus Christ, then you know that everyone that doeth righteousness has been born of him. Little children, let no man deceive you. See, don't, don't, don't let people pull the wool over your eyes. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he, Jesus, is righteous. We're all talking about evidences. We know that we have passed, oh, there it even is in our way we would express it in modern day English, from death unto life because we love the brethren. Now, now let me ask you this question real quick, brethren. With a verse like that, how many people do you run into that say that you've got to love the brethren to get eternally saved? It's, it's set, stated the same way as belief. And if you read the book of John, John's gospel and especially John's epistles, it's stated there almost more than belief, right? No, it's an evidence that you've been born again, that you can do these things. Okay, we go to our fourth proof. The fact that Jesus Christ saves sinners by himself without human cooperation. Salvation is by the obedience of one, Amen. Jesus Christ. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin... And so, in this manner, death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For as by one man's offense, we're just pulling out the key parts of Romans chapter 5 here. For, as, for if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more. They which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, that as even so combination is showing you two things to compare. Their one is just like the other. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. And just so you understand, he's talking about two different categories, right? Anybody that's related to Adam is one category. Anybody that's related to Jesus Christ is the other category. Amen. In context, that's what that all men is talking about. Not all men universally, but all men that are related to Jesus Christ. All men that are related to Adam versus all men that are related to Jesus Christ. Amen. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Same principle, just using different words. 
Salvation is by the obedience of one. Adam and Christ were both representatives. This is a summation of what we just looked at. They acted legally for others before God. Adam condemned you, no matter what your acts. Please, I want to see a show of hands real quickly. How many of you accepted Adam as your personal sin representative? Your personal sinner. I mean, you're smiling, right? You say, what? That, that was a transaction that happened without my choice whatsoever. Exactly. Exactly. Precisely. Yes. In the same way, yes. your representative in Jesus Christ was not your choice either. That was a choice of the God himself. Adam condemned you no matter what you believe. How do we get into Adam? We're born. We were conceived as human beings. We're in his family line. How do we get into Christ? By election, by God having chosen us to be his children. Jesus obeyed for the elect in these passages. We know that we are in Christ when we act like him. When we put on his nature and act like he does. Salvation is by means of the testator's death. But Christ being made and come a high priest of good things to come by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. That by means of death. Amen. For the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal life, inheritance. For where a testament is, there also must of necessity be the death of a testator. Yes. See, by means of death. I don't know about you, brethren, but when I saw when I was first that verse was first pointed out to me with power, it was like wow. It's by means of a death. Yes. That's the basis of salvation. Not the, mean, not the basis of my acceptance. Right. The basis of his death. Salvation is by means of the testator's death. Jesus entered in himself, into heaven himself to save us. He offered himself, oh, this is powerful. Yes. Nowhere in Scripture do you see Jesus Christ being ever offered to a sinner. This is the only place you see Jesus Christ offered, and he's offered to God the Father. Amen. Salvation is by means of a mediator's death. Eternal life is the free choice of the man setting up the testament, yes. the testator. Because what is eternal life? It's one of the blessings and benefits of that testament. See, when you think about it in the proper terms, it makes perfect sense. Transaction was between God and Christ. Amen. Not between me and God. Between God and Christ. Amen. I'm just a beneficiary of it. Jesus Christ purged our sins away by himself. Amen. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, speaking of Jesus, the image of the Father, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had... By himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God, Amen. by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You know, the Roman Catholics, what do they want to do in their altar, in their, in their communion service? Their Eucharist, they call it. They offer up Jesus Christ afresh every time they do it. He was offered up once. That's the only one that's ever been accepted. He brought salvation to us and he finished it. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's a prophecy we read just a few minutes ago, didn't we? Jesus said it's finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Any additions defeat 
the gospel. Any additions to Jesus Christ and what he did defeat the gospel. Paul, talking to the Galatians, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever you are that are justified by the law. You're fallen from grace. Mary had a son, and she, he saved his people. Interesting. What did the angel say Jesus was to be called? Did I just give it away? And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. What does that mean? See, we just name people Bob or John or Fred for whatever reason. There was a specific reason he was named Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. What is Jesus? Jesus is the, is the Greek version of the Hebrew Joshua. Jehoshua. Jehovah is salvation. And he was named that not just as a pretty name, but because an indication of what he would do with his life. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that he, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And look at that. Because ye are sons. See, because God's already made us his sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Calling out to God, believing on him, is because we're already his children that we do that. The next proof. The ordinances of the gospel were never intended to give eternal life. When God gave his gospel, he didn't intend for it to be to give us life. Roman or daughters teach sacraments. Scripture denies and teaches ordinances. And ordinances, something simple like this, brethren, who was the Bible written to? Who were all the apostles, who are all the epistles of Paul and Peter and John and James? Who were they written to? Sinners? Saints. Saints in churches. Baptism does not save by washing away the filth of our sinful flesh. We've heard that recently. It's only a figure. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, not washing away our Adamic sin, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Amen. And it saves us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper. The next thing in line. People want baptism to save. Okay, well, if baptism doesn't save, how about the Lord's Supper? It's... Read scripture, what's it tell us? It's a memorial of Christ's death. It's not the application of it. For as often as you eat this bread, notice it didn't say eat the body of Jesus Christ, the blood, soul, and divinity. It says as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show. You got a picture of the Lord's death till he come. Would anybody have a problem if I brought out a picture. I mean, I could call one up here on my little iPad. If I gave a picture, showed you a picture of Sue, would anybody have a problem that that's my wife over there, not the thing I'd show up there? That's a picture of her. That's a representation of her, right? But how many people have a problem with the Lord's Supper? Thinking it's something real that gives life and not what it says, a picture. The Lord's Supper is a memorial of Christ's death, not the application of it. For as often as you do eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he come. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the Scripture spirits only testify of him. Why do I put that in there? Well, what do Arminian Baptists believe? What's the instrumental means that a Calvinist would use to get you saved? It's the preaching of the Word. It's the reading of the Bible, right? It's in the same category as baptism and the Lord's Supper. And there are three that bear witness in earth. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Talking about what we've just pointed there in in number five. Confirmation, penance, extreme unction, orders, matrimony. That's Rome's heresies. You won't find those taught in Scripture at all. Heresy that baptism saves are the greatest cause of salvation error. This is correctly called baptismal regeneration. By putting some water 
against the body, you've saved them for eternity. Roman or Lutheran, Episcopalian, Methodist, and Presbyterian daughters believe it. I came from a group that believed it. Orthodox, Greek and Russian Orthodox, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, Pentecostals, Campbellites, and others believe a different version of it, but same thing. 97% of all so-called Christians believe it. Once accepted, you baptize as early as you can. Because you know, no religious, no, no minister, no priest likes grieving mamas around. He wants to get them as stilled and as comfortable as possible. So he's going to make sure he takes care of their infants. Once accepted, you baptize in any watery way. I like that. You know, especially if you look at the symbolism of the New Testament. What's the symbolism? What does baptism symbolize? The death, burial, and resurrection. Tell me, what would happen in our community if we had a a cemetery out back and we went out and sprinkled a little dust on, on the bodies? Don't you think they'd arrest us real quick, the health department? Because that's unsanitary. That's not a burial. See, even symbolism. Once accepted, you baptize for dead relatives. Go back up there to our Mormon friends. I love that passage over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that's one of those gems which the Lord gave to us. Because you know what? As a Presbyterian, there's no way I could answer that. What that means, baptism for the dead. We've got an answer as Baptists for that, don't we? Amen. We're being baptized in the picture of the man who died for us. Once you accept that baptism saves, you may be baptized in utero. The gospel is not the means of salvation, but it's the good news about salvation to the saved. Amen. Gospel cannot help a natural man at all. And he said to them, didn't our brother cover this earlier today? If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Do you realize what that's saying? A combination of miracles and preaching of the gospel won't help anybody. Because they were asking for more than just the preaching of the gospel. He wanted somebody coming from the dead. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. But if you've got to hear and believe to be saved, then how can you be saved? Grace has to be unconditional. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. What? Yeah. Just to a a damned soul, to a soul that hasn't had regeneration, it's foolish. But unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, which are demonstrated through the preaching of the gospel. But if our gospel be hid, it be hid to them that are lost. See, those that are saved will see the gospel and understand it. Those that are lost can't see it or understand it. The gospel brings eternal life to light. You know the difference between flicking a light switch? That's what the gospel does. It flicks a light switch. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. They were ordained to life, therefore they believed the gospel. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ. In them that are saved... And in them that perish, you know, this is a great comforting verse going over to Malaysia to do what we're going to be doing shortly. No matter what you do, if you're preaching the gospel properly, it's going to be a success. To the one, we are the savor of death and to death. To those who don't have a heart, a spiritual heart for these things, All that's going to be made manifest is that they don't have a spiritual heart if we're doing our job properly. And to the other, the savor of life and to life. To those who see and hear the preaching of the gospel and grab a hold of it and want to do something with it, hey, that's just manifesting that they are God's children. That they were chosen before the foundation of the world. 
Talking about Jesus Christ who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest. Now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Remember, what's a manifest? Manifest is a display of the contents of a ship. That's the technical term for it. You want to know what's on that ship? The ship captain keeps a manifest. It's a listing of all the trunks and equipment and different stuff that he's carrying on that ship. What the gospel does, the preaching of the gospel, is it shows what the gospel is all about. Brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's that light switch. that Somebody's got eyes, remember, to see. You turn on the light. Now I see. Now I understand about my salvation. I know who my father is. I know what he wants me to do with my life. That's what the gospel is there for. Wherein two, Paul was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Salvation takes God's creative power, which the gospel can't do. The power necessary for salvation resides only in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 4. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's Jesus Christ. Number six, scriptures show examples of eternal life without, without conditions. Examples of people who are saved. For example, John the Baptist. Think about it. We've already said that faith, right, joy are all fruits of the Spirit. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Ghost and leaped for joy before he was born. What preacher preached to him? What gospel tract did he read? For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. This was the prophecy given to his parents about him before he was born. Here's the testimony of when it occurred from his mother Elizabeth. For lo, speaking to Mary, who had the Lord Jesus Christ already in her womb. For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Evidence, he was already born again before he was literally born. Doesn't the Lord like to do things like that to test our faith or to give us joy? For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are, present tense, the sons of God. John was the son of God in his mother's womb. But the fruit of the Spirit is joy. We've already seen before. Lot was a just and righteous man, but scriptures show that he was terribly in love with the world. You know, except for this passage in Peter, what would most of us think about Lot? Cordwood for hell. But it shows he was a righteous man. And all that went on inside of the Gomorrah, he didn't approve of. And it vexed his soul. But it didn't get him to move out of there. Cornelius. He was righteous. He was accepted with God before he met Peter. Or hearing the gospel or being baptized. Devout man. This was a testimony of him before Peter even heard the testimony of him. A devout man, one that feared God with all his house, gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. And by the way, why was Peter sent to him? His prayers were answered. He was praying to God, God, what do you want me to do? God sent an angel to Peter to say, go preach to this man. He needs to know what he needs to do. He and his old household. Of a truth I perceive, this is Peter, that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness has been accepted with him. Rich ruler chose to keep his wealth rather than follow Jesus. But Jesus loved him. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, you need to believe on me. No, 
Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up your cross, and follow me. But he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. I mean, as we watched him walk off, what would we have said? <laughs> Poor fellow. But our Lord loved him. And our Lord doesn't love those he's casting into hell. The Lord's not going to weep over Satan and his angels, nor will he weep over any man, woman, or child who's in that same condition. Israel that came out of Egypt under Moses was disobedient. Oh, this is a, <laughs> this is a good one, brethren. But they partook of Christ. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that our, all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That rebellious nation that came out of Egypt, the, whose all their carcasses but two dropped in the desert, and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink that same spiritual drink. Look at the words Paul's using. Well, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed him, and that rock was Christ. But... With many of them, God was not well pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Great example to us, brethren. What kind of lives are we leading? We can be God's blood-bought children and suffer terribly in this world and miss His best. But that's another message. Because of the time, I'm going to go down through, well, real quickly. Notice they did not obey the gospel. They displeased God, lusted, fornicated, idolized, tempted, murmured. But they were the church. Yes. Acts chapter 7, verse 38 is called the church in the wilderness by Stephen. They were chosen. They were chastened. They were children. They were loved of God. They were the fathers of the Gentile church. They were a legitimate example for saints whom Paul could say all, could also depart. God chastened the brethren in Corinth also. If we think they're bad, well, what about our brethren in Corinth? Who he very specifically states that some of you are weak, some of you are sickly, and some of you sleep. And I don't mean that their eyes were heavy in a service. That meant that they were dead because of their disobedience. That's how serious God's chastening can be. Trying to get on. There are other examples we can use. I want to hit, move on to, though, the last point, if I can get to it. Proof number seven. Yes. Unconditional eternal life is the only way to maximize God's glory. Amen. Conditions give all the glory to man. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If your belief is involved, it's a debt. God owes you. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou didst not receive it? If God has done all he can to save all men, but their salvation depends on them to complete it, they're their own Savior. Those in error speak of getting to heaven to thank some man for getting them there. That wonderful man, that soul winner who gave me that track. Those in hell, think about this one. They had just as much reason to thank God for eternal life as those in heaven. Right? God died equally. I mean, God sent his son to die equally for all of them. It's only those smart ones that accepted the offer. They're in heaven. And that you say, that's so absurd. And that's the point. It is absurd. That is not what grace is all about. God wants all the glory for himself. You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Amen. That's where we need to glory, brethren, for our salvation.
God wants all the glory for himself. But he is a Jew which is one out inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. That's what we're going to be throughout all eternity, brethren. Vessels of of glory for the Lord. In the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. God created all things, even the wicked, for his own pleasure. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Salvation is by God's predestinating purpose for his own glory. According to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory. Our conclusion, world's religions and most so-called Christian denominations stand opposed to God's salvation as taught in Holy Scripture. You see and love God's wisdom and power in Christ is an evidence that you're already saved. If you're thankful for his gracious salvation, then you should answer him. (laughs) Answer him in baptism. Answer him in confession before other men. If you're already baptized, then you must worship God only in spirit and in truth. May God be glorified and magnified 